Well, the holy days represent key events in God's plan of salvation for mankind. Uh, Dr. Douglas Winnale, a few, a few years ago at the Future Tabernacles in, in Palm Harbor, Florida, gave a sermon in which he discussed various turning points in history that revealed God's intervention in human affairs. And more recently, he has uh, authored various articles for the Tomorrow's World magazine discussing that very same topic. But the holy days are similar in that they reveal turning points not only in human history, but actually in the history of the world and, for that matter, the universe, which certainly that does involve the plan of salvation for mankind. Let's turn over to Leviticus 23, and we will read the traditional part of this time of year. It's been referred to a couple of times, but as was mentioned this morning by Mr. Smith, the thrust of the sermon this afternoon will be reminder and review of what this day means. And, of course, we pretty much all of us know that, depending on how new we are, uh, understand that. But God does tell us to review these things as we go through these days to make sure that we don't forget what uh, what we're to believe, what we're to do. And, of course, the fact that we're all here does let us know that we are well aware of it at the current time. But over in Leviticus 23, we'll pick it up in verse 1. We'll read the first five verses. And the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feast of the Eternal, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feast. So right off the bat, a reminder that they are commanded holy assemblies that we are to attend. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn arrest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Eternal in all your dwellings. And then in verse 4, these are the feast of the Eternal, holy convocations which you shall proclaim in their appointed times. God designates when they are to be observed. They are not arbitrary. And even that would fit in with the Sabbath. Reminder of the way it's worded there that this was commanded by God. It's not just one of the Ten Commandments in the sense that it's also reiterated right here. It's a festival time. But they're appointed, and they're appointed by God. And we are to assemble on the weekly Sabbath and also then on the holy days. And on the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Eternal's Passover. And Passover, of course, is a spiritual landmark in the history of the universe in which Christ qualified to become our Savior. And he was successful in doing so. But that was an absolute prerequisite for the other parts of God's plan to be successful. Had Christ failed in that mission, then everything else would have been for naught. There would have been no more holy days to observe in the sense that we would have any chance to be saved by God because Jesus Christ had failed, but Christ did not fail. And so certainly that success in resisting all the temptations of Jesus, of, of Satan, the devil, and qualifying to become our Savior by living a perfect life, again, was something that if we spend any time at all thinking about, just seems monumental 
How many of us successfully go through even one day without failing somewhere in our minds? We may not do anything wrong, but how successful are we in controlling our thoughts? And here we know that Christ did not fail. And then he, we read on, on the 15th day of the first same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. And on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. Or to observe that time, and of course we did that in the Passover. And the days of unleavened bread combined represents our acceptance of Jesus as our, our Savior. And also our permanent and lifelong commitment to serve our God, to be obedient to his, his commandments, do his work, do his will, follow his ways of life. Then later in the same chapter in Leviticus 23, verse 15, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete or completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and you shall offer a new grain offering to the eternal. You shall bring forth from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits of the eternal. And in verse 20, he says, The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the eternal with the two lambs, and they shall be holy to the uh, to, to the eternal for the priest. So we are to, they were to do that in ancient Israel. And God, as, as mentioned yesterday by Mr. Frank, does not here designate a name. And a very interesting split sermon to highlight the various names that are used, the four names that are used for the, the Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, and the harvest, and also then the day of first fruits. But in, we find that in over in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 10. We won't turn there because Mr. Frank did so yesterday. But in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 10 and 16, it points out it's called the Feast of Weeks. So we are to celebrate this day. We've not that we count every day one by you know, one by one. But we count. We're aware of the seven weeks. And we are aware by virtue of the calendar we have what day is the day of Pentecost, and we're here to observe that. And I would like to briefly read just a a couple of sections because of the scriptures I read from Leviticus 23 here about the day of Pentecost. Just read from the book about the God's master plan written by Dr. Meredith. Just go to have a reminder here. He says, Coming soon after the days of unleavened bread... The Feast of a Pentecost, or Feast of First Fruits, reminds us that God is now calling only a small First Fruits spiritual harvest, something that we're aware that there are so few of us here when there are about 3.4 million people in the greater part of Charlotte. I think Charlotte itself as a city is approaching almost a million people. But if I heard my numbers correctly the other day that in a report that the greater metropolitan area now is over three million people, very few of us, of them, have the privilege of being here as we do because God has chosen us, has given us the opportunity to be first fruits. And he writes, in commanding the Feast of First Fruits to ancient Israel, 
God told the Israelites to bring a sheaf of the first fruits of the spring grain harvest to the priest. He was to wave this sheaf in a solemn ceremony to be accepted by God and thus obtain God's blessing on this spring harvest and spiritually depict the resurrected Christ being accepted by the Father as the first of the first fruits, the first human to actually be to be actually born of God by a resurrection. The waving ceremony took place on the Sunday, immediately following the weekly Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread. Then he points out here, you shall bring from your habitations, which we read, the two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the eternal. Then he writes also here something that Mr. Frank mentioned yesterday, that Pentecost literally means 50th. And as he said, many of us have often heard that it means count 50, but it does not mean that. It means 50th. So Mr. or Dr. Meredith continues, Then on the day of Pentecost, or first fruits, they were to offer two wave loaves. It was stated that these wave loaves are the first fruits to the eternal. These first fruit loaves evidently pictured both the Old Testament and New Testament people of God, since even the Old Testament prophets had the Holy Spirit of God. So that why the two loaves were baked and offered. And he concludes then here that what I'll be reading, one vital lesson to the first fruits is that God is only calling out a small number of people, the first fruits in this age. As we have stated, the early spring harvest in Israel was a small harvest compared to the major harvest that came in the autumn. So because of what God ordained, it was a picture of why there are so few of us here. So few of us have been given the privilege to understand what God is doing, and we'll be talking about that a little more later in the sermon. So we're here to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, the day of Pentecost, the holy day that, as noted earlier, pictures a turning point in the history of the universe, because this day is a significant step in God's plan of salvation for mankind. So this afternoon, I'd like to simply take the time to review what this day represents, what it pictures in that plan of salvation, and then take special note of some of the results or pieces that fall into our lives because of that fulfillment. So a couple of points in this in this regard that led to one major result. Because what happened on this particular day? Now, Mr. Frank again yesterday mentioned that the tradition, if you will, the belief that God gave the Ten Commandments on the day of Pentecost was not uh, actually taught or noted, I think, until, as he said, the late third century. But based on our best calculations as well, God gave the Ten Commandments on this particular day to Israel in order for them to understand what was given to them and was what was noted in the sermonette. They're written on stone. They were to be, for Israel at least, a permanent copy of what God expected them to do. And as was noted, I won't turn there again, but as was noted by uh, in the the sermonette, that Israel did not have the heart to follow through with those things. They, They promised, they made a covenant with God. They said, all these things we will do. 
And yet, as we know, it was just only a matter of a few days later, they failed in that when Moses did not come down off the mount quickly. And they worried about what happened to him and used that as an excuse to forget, rather conveniently, the covenant they had made with, with God. So God gave Israel the Ten Commandments on Pentecost. And as we well know from other scriptures we've already read, and we'll turn to in a moment in Acts chapter 2, that God gave us his spirit on this day. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 2, and we will again read exciting scripture because of what happened. And if we try to picture this in our minds, we can understand the awe and even some of the description that Mr. Smith gave this morning of what was happening where they were, the 120 or so disciples were gathered together and the kind of noise that made with what was happening and the the attraction of various people to it. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, it's been mentioned by a couple of the men that they have not had the privilege of being near a tornado or surviving through a hurricane. I don't know how many of you might remember the old Little Abner cartoon strip. Some of you I know are old enough to do that. You know, there was one character that always walked around with his dark cloud over his over his head, that everywhere he went there was problems. Uh, if I just look at some of the elements in my life, I'm sure glad I've been protected. I've been through a pretty good-sized earthquake in California, almost tossed out of bed. Uh, a tornado that uh, went down about one block away from my house in Houston. Another one went about half a mile away in Tyler, Texas. I've been through two hurricanes, and you're you're right, or the one just talked about this, that when it goes by your house at about 100 miles an hour, it does sound like a freight train just outside your window. And uh, so this rushing mighty wind, I I hope it wasn't as frightening (laughs) as a hurricane might be, but it certainly got their attention. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues, other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. We find here that there was a terrific event because of these 120 disciples had been faithful in staying in Jerusalem, as we will see in a moment, as Christ had instructed to them and telling them that something special would happen. And they were there together. They were celebrating this particular day as they should. So we then we pick it up in verse 14. Of course, they are being looked upon rather skeptically by the passers-by that have been attracted because of the noise and what's happening. And they're wondering if they're already drunk. Uh, sometime one would think before noon. 
Verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Listen to me. Pay attention to what I'm saying. They're not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by Joel the prophet. Now, the disciples, when they were traveling with Christ, were looked looked upon as unlearned men. And everybody didn't have a copy, hard copy, as we do, of the Old Testament. They had to be taught. They had to memorize these things. But of note here is that this is this happens, and it seems to me that Peter is terrifically inspired right off the bat and says, this is what's spoken by Joel the prophet. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I'll stop there. God here granted his Holy Spirit to mankind. And as as Peter was speaking, I, it, it seems that he and the apostles didn't fully understand even what he was saying there. Because he says, to all flesh. Didn't necessarily think about the ramifications of that. We go down to verse 33. And he's been preaching. And he's explaining to them what needs to be done here, what, what's happened. Verse 33 said, therefore, referring to Christ, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So the two senses that we use to study, to learn. We read it, we see it, we observe it, we listen to the words that are spoken by our teachers, be they in school or our parents or our ministers. But you can both see and hear these things as promised by Christ. And then in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've read that so many times, and we've heard it so many times. It's such a dramatic statement. And whatever our lives involved, as God called us, to reach a point where we experienced verse 37, where we're cut to the heart, and we're looking for some sort of solution to the absolute devastation of our lives and say, you know, I am lost. I'm guilty. I've broken God's law and I'm lost. What can I do about that? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. We, we, of course, our teaching, our booklets, we read right on to verse 38. So we quickly know the solution. But these people were wondering, what can I do now? Because we have killed the Messiah. 
Where do we turn? What's our next step? How do we come out of this situation? And Peter explains to them, repent and be baptized. and You'll receive this gift. Then he adds in verse 39, for the promise is to you and your children and again to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Again, one would think that he didn't really understand what was being said there because he was not just talking about the Jews. Peter likely was thinking about the Jews that were scattered. It would also be what happened here. This great result of this second event was that even was prophesied that God was opening salvation to the Gentiles, to the other peoples that were not Israelites, that were not Jews, and ultimately to all of mankind. Over in Acts chapter 10, I'm not going to read the entire account, but to this point why they had not understood this reality with those words that were spoken on the day of Pentecost. But in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48, here Cornelius, who was in Caesarea, has sent for Peter, who was in Joppa, to, to go down there. And in verse 44, he says, when Peter's preaching to them, and while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed, in other words, there were some converted Jews who were with Peter at that point, they were astonished. As many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered and said, anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So they were given God's Holy Spirit as evidence that God was calling them before they were baptized. So that was a unique situation. We know that we have to repent, be baptized, and then through the laying on of hands today, we receive God's Holy Spirit. But God was working a powerful miracle again with them, just as he had done on the day of Pentecost with those that were witnessing the giving of tongues. And the Gentiles were offered salvation. Back in John 14, it is important we note that God, uh, Jesus Christ, had promised this. In John 14, verses 16 and 17, here in his last Hours with the uh, with the disciples, he writes and I, or he says, and I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, and the margin says another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever. In other words, not leave you. I've got to go away. He's telling him that, but I will not leave you as orphans. The Spirit of Truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. All the time that Jesus Christ had been with the disciples, he's saying that God's spirit was with them, but it was going to come into them. 
Now, for us to receive God's Holy Spirit, we do know there are prerequisites. And what was happening on the day of Pentecost certainly certifies that those that received it were doing this. We know in Acts, I won't turn there, but Acts chapter 5, verse 32, points out that God's Holy Spirit is given to those who obey him. That's evidence that we have repented, we've been granted repentance by God the Father. And while we may not be doing it perfectly, that we are certainly trying to obey all the letter of the law that we can. We're not committing overt sin, we're not practicing sin. And God says that obedience is evidence that we can be given his Holy Spirit. Christ had said back in chapter 14 of John that Christ said, If you love me, keep my commandments. And so the disciples had done that. And then we find, of course, we just read in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that repentance is required. And that we have to have faith in Jesus Christ. To believe that his sacrifice will, in fact, cover and atone for our sins. We have to believe that. Now, sometimes we have trouble believing that after we've been baptized. Well, I, did I really, do I really believe that I repented? Do I do now? Do I know that Christ has wiped out all my sins? So that we, but we still walk around sometimes under this cloud of guilt. We should not do that. We shouldn't believe that God forgives our sins. The, the blood of Christ will cover them. And of course, we get baptized. It is an exhibition of our repentance and of our acceptance of Jesus Christ. What are some of the traits that result from receiving the gift of God's Holy Spirit? What happens? What changes? What might change? Now, again, to grasp this, we, again, we have to first note, I think, some of Christ's words, his last words to his disciples. Let's turn back to Luke 24. Just the one verse here, but it is important to note this. Luke 24, verse 49. It says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. And the Father had promised to give his Holy Spirit. And Christ is the one who says, I will send the promise of my Spirit upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. That is sort of a, uh, a preview of coming events. Sort of a, uh, let me tell you a little bit about what is going to happen. Until you are endued with power. We heard a lot about that this morning. He says to stay there until you receive this. And then in Acts chapter 1, give you a little bit of, of an outline here for the book of Acts. Very short outline. Book of Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. 
Even after he was resurrected, Christ was still preaching the kingdom of God. The very first thing he preached when he began his ministry and what he preached for those three and a half years and for those 40 days after his resurrection, before his ascension into heaven, he was still doing the same job. Again, which we were encouraged to make sure we're doing. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. He, again, quoting himself from back in, back in the book of John. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then in verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Before this job is finished, he said, you're going to be doing this work right down to the end, the end of the age, the end of the earth, throughout the world. Now, there are three things mentioned here. He says, you're going to be witness to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, secondarily, and then to the end of the earth. So just a general outline, which is of interest, I would invite you to look at the book of Acts in this regard. Not necessarily exact verse by verse, but you find in Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, basically is an account of what transpires in and around Jerusalem. There are uh, notable events taking place there. And then from chapter 8 through chapter 12, yeah, through chapter 12, you have basically an account of what happens in Judea and Samaria as the gospel and the scattered, the Christians are scattered. They go out in various parts of the, the country. And then this point here is, and to the end of the earth, you pick it up then in chapter 13. Now, in the interim, interim you have, there's discussion about Paul's conversion and what all. But when you find in chapter 13 all the way through the end of the book of Acts is the gospel is going out to the world as they knew it at the time. And that particular commission that was given, that job that was given, the duty that was given to Paul and all of the apostles still continues right down to today. And even in my brief comment this morning about the over 5,000 people that have been baptized since the living church of God began, of course, and then was only augmented greatly by the comments in the sermon, that we're still doing that work. And this job, they said, you will do this. You will go from this small area. You'll go throughout this near Middle East. And then you will take it to the entire world. And again, for the very few people that they were, that just seems like an incredible Job and incredible duty to think about that being done. But God would support them and would take care of them and see to it that they were able to do that job. A couple of physical examples of that power. There were multiple given this morning. But in Acts chapter 3, just to rehearse just briefly that comment, but in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, and I won't read those, those verses, 
But again, this is where Peter was used to heal this lame man. A dramatic event for, as we would think, dozens, maybe hundreds of people at that particular case. That was a an open door for Peter to again preach the gospel, to preach about Jesus Christ, to talk about the kingdom of God. But what inspired Peter to do that? Had Peter ever done that before? Not, it's not recorded. But all of a sudden he's walking by a lame man and the lame man is asking for alms. And God's spirit influences Peter's mind to say, look, this is the time. This is the place to start. And there can be something here that is powerful display of who and what I am, what I've done, and what I will do for you as my servants. So Peter uttered these words. I don't have any money. What I do have, I'll give you. So just rise up and walk. Took him by the hand. Maybe Peter was even surprised by his words. I don't know. Would any of us be? If God gave us that gift today, the gift of healing? I don't know if any of you have ever thought about that. You've had the thought of just reach out and touch somebody and have them healed? I don't think so. Not me. (laughs) I've wondered what it would be like to a degree, but not expecting it to happen. To see that kind of power displayed. Because it wasn't the man. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't his hand. It was God's spirit working through him. Even inspiring the very thought to say those words. God can influence what we think. How we act. What we do as well. Over in chapter 20. Just one other example. In many cases... The miracles that are performed are to be provided there as an entree, an an opportunity to preach the gospel, to do the work. In some cases, it's simply a matter of recognizing the faith of someone or Christ corroborating the, the authority and the power that he's given to one of his servants. And here we find this happens to Someone in what we'd call in the church. Acts chapter 20, verse 6. Of course, Paul has been preaching. Acts 20, verse 6. Uh, Make sure I'm in the right place here. We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. In five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story And was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. The power for God to restore life administered through one of his servants, through 
the Apostle Paul, something that none of them probably up to that point had ever seen happen. But certainly authenticating the kind of office that Jesus Christ had ordained Paul to, his apostle going out to do the work and then performing this special, very special miracle. What are some of the other manifestations of this power that Christ promised? I've got four points. Two of them I will make reference to fairly briefly because of the messages that we have heard already. But one of the great promises that comes through God's Holy Spirit is that of unity. Now, when I thought to use the word unity, we can easily pick up on the sermon that was given this morning of being together in one accord. Why are you and I here? How much do we have in common, really? Do we all get together because we're some sort of the, we're the fan of a, you know, some celebrity? No. In reality, physically, many of us, for most of us, we have very little in common in our past. I mean, sometimes we're surprised when we're even from the same area. No, I grew up again in Logan, West Virginia, and uh, there's a young lady here that even knows where that is. <laughs> Not everyone does. Uh, I find these things interesting. We are a motley group. Now, motley sounds like a terrible word, but it really just means different. It has a pejorative ring to it. We were brought together by a common denominator long after our, our births. We're not here by accident. God called and chose each one of us to bring us together, and he wants us to be of one accord. He wants us to be united in purpose. And the unity that you and I as a group, the unity that we can share, is a demonstration of God's Holy Spirit. That's what binds us together. Unity is a great result. But how often can we find unity? We find unity in families? No, we don't, not in the world. We should see unity in our families, at, at our homes. We should also should see that here. Why is it that all of us look upon the Sabbath each week as the best day of the week? It's because we can be together with people of like mind. And because we are of like mind, we are of like purpose. We have this mission, this commission, as Mr. Smith talked about so well this morning. That you and I have a purpose in life. What do we think about when we get up in the morning? If we pray and we get a chance to do both prayer and study in the morning before we go out, that is part of cementing our minds in the same purpose. And as we do that, as we study God's word, we are maintaining that unity because it is the mind of Christ that's being given to us. And the mind of Christ in me 
should recognize that mind in you and vice versa. We are of one mind, one purpose. Unity comes from God's Holy Spirit. All right, second point. Truth and understanding come as a result of God's Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, verse 13, John chapter 16, verse 13, talking about truth and understanding. Christ is speaking here again at the end of his physical life, referring to God's Holy Spirit. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. Guide you into all truth. We don't claim to have total all truth. We're still learning. But that comes, that understanding, that truth comes through God's Holy Spirit given to you and to me. And given to those that preceded us. Given to Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong to learn that the world was all wrong. There was another understanding of God's scriptures. And he used to do, was used to do a, a great work that many of us had direct contact with. God's Holy Spirit guides us into that truth. Now, even as we were listening to the sermon this morning, I'm just thinking about this scripture. And Mr. Smith took just a couple of moments to highlight what scriptures did not mean. Remember how he started this? Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he talked about building the church, and the church would not die out. And he took a few moments to explain that upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, for those of us that have been around for a while, it, it's almost, it, we've known that for years, Right? But that element of truth is just one of those minor, if you want, somewhat minor things in that understanding that word, at least, is just so, so important. And that truth is not known, not recognized by very many. We understand it. He pointed out about, he made some comment, it wasn't the scripture he referred to, but he made some reference about being born. And he took the time to clarify, oh, I'm not talking about being born right now. We're not yet born. We're just begotten by God's Holy Spirit. Again, that piece of truth that we take, we, we, we talk about those things very easily because everyone understands that, because we have God's Spirit. And then he used in Matthew chapter 20, again pointing out in verses 19 and 20, that Christ would be with us always that that was also telling us that the work would be going on to the end of the age. Something we know. We believe that. God's Spirit makes that understanding, that knowledge of truth possible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, First Corinthians chapter 2, 
verses 9 through 14. Paul writing to the Corinthians, verse 9, But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Something we can't make up on our own. We can't imagine these things. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. We have to have God's Holy Spirit to understand these things. Now, we have not received nor the spirit, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. As we go through a doctrine or through a study, going from one piece of Scripture in the Old Testament to the New and back and forth we go, we compare spiritual things with spiritual things. We learn God's Word. We understand it. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Can you remember how exciting it was for you to begin to understand when you were being called of God and you opened the Bible and you read it and you understood it? Can you remember when you couldn't do that? When reading the Bible was just a waste of time. I can remember that. Well, little I read the Bible when I was young, but it was like a giant jigsaw puzzle, which is what it is. And it had no rhyme, no reason, and it thought, well, to understand this, you'd have to spend a lifetime. Right. <laughs> you have to spend lots of time going back and forth and discerning God's word and being taught by God. But it's an exciting thing to open the Bible, read it, and understand it. And you open up the Bible the next day, and maybe you read the exact same thing for some reason, and it takes on a different meaning. You discern something different because God's Spirit is working with you, continuing to work with us. That's exciting. So we're given this opportunity to know and discern the things of God. Over in 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, Verse 9, breaking into the middle of a thought, middle of a sentence. First Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. That's where our faith will lead us to actually be given salvation. And of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, that what is read or what is written and we read from the Old Testament are prophecies about what would happen once God gave his Holy Spirit and began to preach the gospel to the world. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them 
was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. There are dozens and dozens of prophecies about Jesus Christ and about what would happen under the new covenant discussed in the Old Testament. And these men were recording these things wondering, when will this be? To them it was revealed that not to themselves... But to us, here in verse 12, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit is what makes it possible for this gospel to be preached. Sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. God revealed his plan, details of it. Through human beings. And apparently angels were listening because they wanted to understand. They were not given all the secrets, all all the pieces and details of the mystery. We have been given that. I'd like to read something. I didn't read it yesterday, but you have a copy of it. The comments from Dr. Douglas Winnell in the update from headquarters. He just asks here in his comments, he says, thankful for the truth? Question. The Sabbath and the holy days are good times to reflect on this important question. How thankful are you for the truth? He writes further down in in this short article or short uh, paragraph, the capacity to understand the plan of God as pictured by the holy days, the purpose of life, and the true way of life is a gift imparted by the Holy Spirit that God is making available to only a few at this time. These precious truths are a mystery to most people. Then he writes, And Jesus said, It is an incredible privilege to be given an understanding of God's truth. The Apostle Paul said that to be called out of darkness into the light of the truth is something to be extremely thankful for. Writing in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. Just a reminder, which has been mentioned several times already, but it is a time as we celebrate these holy days that we are truly grateful that we have the understanding that enables us to be here today. Why do we sacrifice the things that we do, our activities, our money, our time? Why do we make the changes in our lives to be where God says to be? To do what he says to do and to try to learn to think as he thinks. It's because God has called us to understand very, very special truth. And that being a part of his work today. Part of his family. So this truth and understanding that God gives to us through his Holy Spirit is a direct consequence of that. That's what God's Spirit does. It gives you and me understanding. And because we know what he's doing, and we know the promises he has made to each of us to help us, to strengthen us, and to eventually give us something very, very special, we are willing to change our lives with his help and conform to his way of life. All right, third point. And again, I won't discuss this in great detail because this was discussed yesterday in the the split sermon by Dr. Winnell, eternal life. 
is a result of God's Holy Spirit being given to us. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll note a couple of scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, to rehearse one of the points that Dr. Winnell brought to us. Verse 20 says, For all the promises of God in him are yes. They're absolute. God cannot lie. He has promised to give us eternal life. All the promises are yes. And in him, amen, so be it, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. God has called us. God has selected us. But he's also, in verse 22, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That this seed of eternal life that God gives us at after baptism and through the laying on of hands, is a down payment on eternity. It's a guarantee that if we keep that, if we hold on to it, if we do submit the rest of our lives to him, he will give us eternal life. A guarantee. He tells us in James chapter 1, verse 18, and I won't turn there right now, but that we are a kind of first fruits. Again, the lesson behind the physical observance of this day under the old covenant, under what Israel was supposed to do. We are a kind of first fruits. We are a small, small group of people who've been given this chance to understand and also this enormous responsibility of, can do, of doing his work. Then in Romans chapter 8, the way this is worded confirms this particular point that God has promised us eternal life. And it is a result of having his spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through, Martin also says, because of, through his spirit, which dwells in you. That is the vehicle. That is the method by which we can gain eternal life is because we have been given God's Holy Spirit. We have been begotten by his Holy Spirit. And that is a criterion, the criterion for eternal life. Mr. Armstrong, in a Bible study that I heard, was asking the Bible study, what, how do we, what's, what is the criterion or the criteria for being made a spirit being? His answer was, you have to have God's Holy Spirit. That's the criterion. It doesn't tell you what kind of reward you're going to get because eternal life is a gift. But if we receive God's Holy Spirit at baptism and the laying on of hands and we nurture that 
And we keep it. And it's there and we die in the faith. Or we are abiding and living in the faith when Christ returns. That is the vehicle by which we will be made spirit beings. We do not want to lose God's Holy Spirit. Because that's our key. That's our down payment on eternal life. All right, point number four. What is, what is the trait, a major trait, of receiving God's Holy Spirit? Well, remember, we started this discussion by the words of Jesus Christ in saying, look, stay in Jerusalem until you can be imbued with power. Now, we heard a lot about power this morning. If you, and if you want a good study, because much of what is go, you go through the epistles by Paul and the general epistles, Peter and James and, and John and even Revelation, uh, but especially the, the epistles that are written, it's a lot of, of doctrine and a lot of recording and encouragement in Christian living. But if you want to do an interesting, just go through the book of Acts and find all of the accounts of the miracles, some of which Mr. Smith rehearsed this morning in the first four or five chapters of the book of Acts. But the book of Acts has miracle after miracle after miracle displaying the power of God's Holy Spirit working through his servants. It's a great study. But let's turn over to Second Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1, and let's think about this particular verse. I would ask each of us as individuals. What God has given you and given me. Verse 7, first he tells us what he's not given us. He's not given us the spirit of fear. We cannot, we don't need to have, we should not worry about failing. If we stay close to him, we are going to be successful in being a part of his kingdom. And I know that has a, a broad meaning, but that's part of it. But what has God given us? He says, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You need God's Holy Spirit to have a truly sound mind. The carnal mind is not sound. But what he tells us here, he has given us a spirit of power. How much power do you and I feel on a daily basis? Now, I realize as human beings, we have to understand our weaknesses. <laughs> we need to understand that we, we don't have this oven by ourselves. But God says he has given us a spirit of power. We can't do the work by ourselves. We're very small. God's not to work some special miracles to help us finish this work and use us and when it's all said and done the fact that it's been done by so few and by such a disparate group of people and all kinds of backgrounds only god can be given the glory no man will be able to claim glory for what's done it'll be the father and jesus christ you know while we understand 
our shortcomings and our weaknesses, our frailties as human beings. But he says we've been given spirit of power, power that you and I can use. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And again, breaking into the middle of the verses here, but the thoughts. Verse 19, and what he says, What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? The power, again, is not humanly generated. It's generated by God's Holy Spirit in us, God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, what is Paul saying there? Paul's saying that the power that God has to resurrect Jesus Christ and give him back his share of rulership of the universe and place him at his right hand on his throne. He says, go back to verse 19, exceeding greatness of his power toward us, what he can do with us, what he can accomplish through us, if we will, in fact, continue to submit to him, stay loyal to him and his way of life. Well, just how powerful is God? I mean, that's a, you know, there are a gazillion answers to that, I know. A couple of them. God says back in Isaiah chapter 40, won't turn there, but Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 and 26. He says that he calls all the stars by name. Now, I don't know why (laughs) he would name every one of them. I mean, how many of us in here know the name of every individual in this room? I'm trying, brethren. (laughs) I'm trying to hook a face with it, with the name and vice versa as we go through this. You can pray for me in that regard. Sometimes we're challenged with names and faces. And our memories as we are get older, it seems to me, at least for me, names become even more difficult. Things that were so easily recalled 20 years ago, just somehow they fade. But God says he knows the name of every star. We don't even know how many there are because maybe the math doesn't work. If there are hundreds of billions of galaxies and each galaxy has hundreds of billions of stars, I don't know how many zeros there are there. But he knows all of them. How great is that? Now, again, I don't know why he does that, but he has a reason You think about one of these days, perhaps you and I will have that kind of recall when we're part of the family of God. Maybe that's part of it. If we're going to inherit this universe, we'll need to know where we are (laughs) as we are, by the power of thought, move around from one galaxy to another, whatever, whatever he's got planned. But that's how great God is. Now, we go based on Genesis chapter 1. That God spoke and things happened. 
And out of the words of the Logos, the Jesus Christ, the God of the Old Testament, out of those words, if you read the word, Genesis 1-1 says that, you know, that, that these things were done, Barah, that these things were created from nothing. God spoke the words and things came, physical things came into existence. Now, it's one thing, like any project, I mean, let's say you, you, you might make, you make something, you build something, and what do you have to do if you want to keep it in working order? You have to maintain it, right? Well, God says, hey, I do that too. Not only do I speak and things happen, but he says, I uphold all those things. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, I uphold all things. By the word of my power. So everything that's there was designed by him. Came into existence quickly by because he had designed it. He and the father designed these things. And he spoke the word and they existed. And he says, I can maintain that by the word of my power. What about the power that he puts in us? And this is simply a reminder of the power of choice that you and I have. And sometimes we give ourselves much too tolerance for being human because we may not call on the power that's available to us to change how we think, to change what we do, and to certainly to change what we say. Over in Romans chapter 6, in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, verse 12 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. Where that's where it says, don't let it, don't don't allow that. We have the ability to refrain from doing that if we use the power of God's Spirit that He offers us. If we ask Him for that power, ask Him to help us realize if we would only use the power rather than ignore it sometimes, we can actually. Refrain from that. In verse 13, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness of sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This is something we can choose to do. God has given us that kind of power. If it's the same power that resurrected Jesus Christ and restored him to the throne of heaven, it's the same power that memorizes or knows all the names of the stars that created the universe. The same spirit. There's only one spirit. We have access to that. In Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. 
Now here we're talking about the armor of God. But we'll just read the one verse about one element of this armor. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The shield of faith that is a product of God's Holy Spirit in us. We will be able to resist all of the temptations, any one of them that Satan may throw at us. Now, I know that we're not going to do this perfectly. Don't get me wrong. But at any given time, of all the dozens of choices that you and I have to make every day, every decision point offers a choice that you and I can make. And it says here we are able, we'll be able to quench those fiery darts, to turn away from a wrong choice and make a right choice. You and I can choose to resist Satan. We can re- choose to resist temptation. We can choose to obey God. Doesn't mean that we are absolutely perfect as was Jesus Christ. But every day you and I, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, face multiple choices and each time we can choose to do what's right. We can choose to think what's right. We can choose to say what's right and we can also choose to not say what's wrong. We have the power to do that. Do we expect that of ourselves? No excuses. I have the power to do this in our minds. Do we think that I can't excuse myself because God says he's given me the power of his Holy Spirit to make right choices, to not sin. Over in Romans chapter 8, And we turn to this chapter so often, and maybe it's one of the most, well, I shouldn't say maybe, it is one of the most beautiful chapters of Scripture in the entire Bible because of all of the encouragement and optimism that it offers to us. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, we know that Satan is against us, but he's not asking. It's a rhetorical question, but who can be against us? Who can be against us that was going to overpower God being for us? There is no one. They can't overpower God. If God is for us, who can be against us? In verse 37... Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We have the chance to be more than conquerors. And go back then to verses 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Christ is only the firstborn. He's the first of the first fruits. Because you and I have the chance to be part of that same family. And we were chosen as a group. God was choosing us down through the ages to be part of that. In verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, he, these he also justified. He made right in their relationship with God. And whom he justified. These he also glorified. That is a prophecy for you and for me. That we will be given an opportunity to be a part of the family of God. We will be glorified. Members of the family of God. To individually contribute. It's about individuals now. In that sense. Because we've got great encouragement this morning to be that church compared to the early church in 31 A.D. Now, if you read the book of Hebrews, that church, those people, some of them, later had some problems. Some of their, if you read Revelation 2 again, some of, some of them lost their first love. And what Mr. Smith was sharing with us this morning was the kind of zeal and the kind of dedication that is we associate with the first love. To where we don't become lackadaisical about it, so used to doing it, so used to knowing it, that somehow it's just routine. There is nothing routine about our lives. Not really. Not with the responsibilities that you and I have been given. There's nothing routine about that. Now, our daily routine, if you will, going to work, getting up, cooking dinner, whatever, those are routine. But the ultimate calling and responsibilities you and I have been given, they're not routine at all. We have a chance to share in this, what, again, earlier I mentioned, as turning points in history, turning points in the universe, because God has given you and me his Holy Spirit. He's given us a share of the mind that is righteous. And we have the power to do the work, be used by him to do that work, and we have the power to live a Christian life. Let's truly use the power that God has offered to us through his spirit to change, to grow, to qualify, and to make that individual contribution to that church that we heard discussed this morning, to be a part of the body that represents that kind of zeal, that kind of dedication. And in closing, I would like to read some comments that were written by Mr. Rod McNair back in June, June 9th of 2016. And this is about Pentecost. It was just given in, in the world ahead. And I find this very, very inspiring, so I'll conclude with this. At this season of Pentecost, it's good to reflect on that referring that we need God's Spirit. It was through His Spirit that God designed everything on earth, the seas, the mountains, and the heavens. Through His Spirit, He built the sun and the planets in our solar system. Through His Spirit, He mapped out interstellar space and billions of other galaxies beyond. 
Through his spirit, he crafted the entire humanly unreachable universe, which will one day be our inheritance. He has given that same spirit to his church. On the day of Pentecost, 31 A.D., God gave his church the power to change the human heart, which we heard about today. The power to change, to conquer sin and to face persecution. He gave power to cast out demons, heal the sick, and to take the gospel to the world. Ultimately, by his power, we will enter the spirit realm as glorified sons and daughters in his kingdom. On this Holy Day weekend, let us never forget or become confused as to where our strength originates. It is not in our own power. He quotes then from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, Not by might, nor by power, not human power, but the power that Christ said we would be imbued with, that he has given to his people, given to his servants, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What we have to do is use that power.